I am not Chris Murphy, for those of you that know that. Um, Chris is on a very well-deserved break. Um, she and her husband were able to get away for a little bit. So um, for those of you that don't know me, I am Lauren Etter. I get to serve as your discipleship coordinator um, for women's Bible study. So all things women's study. And that means when one of our teachers um, takes a break, then I get to step in uh, and take over teaching for her. Um, she will be back next week. Um, I told her when she left that no one was praying harder for her safe return than I was. <laughs> so um, I'm getting used to this little earpiece. I feel like a pop star right now, like I need to dance. Y'all don't, don't want me to sing or dance, I promise you. Um, so a little bit about me for those of you that I have not met. Um, whenever we have a teacher come in, we like to hear a little bit about who they are and um, what relevance they have to come in and teach. So for those of you that don't know, I come from a CBS or community Bible study background. Um, if you're not familiar with community Bible study, it's similar to BSF or Bible study fellowship. Um, they were birthed well, actually, CBS was birthed out of BSF, and I served most recently as their teaching director for the Coppell Louisville class, and the Lord lovingly called me out of that role last year, um, not knowing why, and then he presented something at my home church, which I'm so grateful to be here at my home church and to be with, involved with all the women's studies here at Rock Point. So whether you're from Rock Point or you're from another church and with us for study, we are so glad you're here. Um, you are seen and you are cared for, and we pray over all of you throughout the entire semester. Um, but with that said, the teaching today is going to be a covering basically the entirety of Titus. And this study made me sweat a little bit. I've taught Titus before and I've done Titus along with you, but it's a very personal application to decide what your goal was for your class for the entire semester. So with it not being Chris, my goal might have been different than what hers was. And it might have been different where yours was. So just before we get started, I wanted to let you know that my opinion on Titus and how it applied to my life does not necessarily mean that's how it applied to you all. So please don't take what I say as the way you should have taken it. Um, but I've loved this study and so much of it has been applicable to my life in this season. Again, um, every time we get in the word, he brings something new to us. So I'm anxious to share with you what he gave me and so happy to be here with you. So if you'll join me, I'm going to pray and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. Um, I thank you for each of these ladies in this room. I thank you, Lord, for their obedience and desire to study your word, um, to know you on a deeper level, um, and to seek your truth. I ask, God, that you prepare us to receive what you have for each of us this morning. Um, I ask, God, that you would wipe any words um, that were not yours from my lips, and that above all, that I will glorify you this morning. We love you and thank you and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the book of Titus, for me, um, when I sum it together, is that God's grace has arrived. Um, his grace, the remembrances of his promises and who he is throughout Titus uh, kind of wash over me like a warm hug. I feel for Titus. If you've ever studied Timothy also, Timothy and Titus were kind of my guys when I started out um, in teaching. And so Titus is a friend of Paul's, and he came to know Christ because of Paul. So there's a very special connection there between the two of them. And so he leaves Titus, his buddy, with this gift this gift of this church that needs to be taken care of and set up and kind of cleaned up. So I'm sure Titus, as Paul leaves, thinks, thanks, friend. I'm so glad that we're such good friends. This is what you left me with. Thank you for this. Um, so you kind of feel for Titus. He definitely needed all the prayers that he could get and um, what he was taking on. The church there needed sound teachers. 
they needed very strong and disciplined shepherds. And then there were those within the church at the time at Crete that were mixing Jewish and personal doctrine into truth. Um, And that is a dangerous thing with false teaching, especially with the early churches. This letter that Paul wrote to him gave him a framework of what to work with. It was basically a guideline or a, a cheat sheet for him to follow as he's trying to navigate a season that he was not expecting or prepared for. Um, the awesome thing that, I, that God showed me in studying Titus is confidence, that Paul had confidence in Titus to leave him there and knew that God would equip him to do the work that God had called him to do. And on all those moments where Titus probably thought, I cannot do this. What have I ended up doing? Why am I here? Why did I sign up for this? That confidence that came from his mentor and the confidence that he knew his mentor had from God, that God was who called Titus to this role, that was like the warm hug that he needed. And there's been so many moments in my life, and I'm sure you've had some of those too, where you have ended up in a job or a volunteer position or a relationship or a situation you think, I cannot believe this is where God wants me. I do not feel equipped for this. This is not my calling. This is not what I expected. But if you feel confident that you heard correctly that you're where God wanted you, that confidence that he will do it through you, that he knew what he was bringing you to, that is like the warm hug that you need. God does not call the equipped. He equips those that he calls. In fact, he loves to call to make it highlight that how unequipped we are. I have taught many, many, many times. And every time I have to, teach, have to come up and teach, I get to come teach, I am sweating profusely. My stomach's in knots. It never gets easier. But it's always a reminder that it's not me. It's him. And that if I'm relying on my own strength and my own confidence that I can do it, he's going to remind me by allowing me to throw up before I teach that it's going to be him doing it. I didn't throw up, but I was close, but I didn't. <laughs> Y'all are not scary, I promise you. I'm sweating way less than I did last night when I did this. Okay, um, Titus covers a variety of instructions and a variety of guidelines, um, but the, the one that stuck out to me is very early on in Titus, and I wanted to make sure that we didn't overlook this very um, important promise, and it's the promise that God does not lie. God does not lie. He is who he says he is, and that's in verse 1 and 2 in Titus. It says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. God promised before the ages began, before we took our first breath, a promise was made to us. Before we were in existence, before anyone knew we were coming, he did, and he made a promise. And he does not lie. For all the areas of unknown in our lives, until we take our last breath, The one confidence you can have that you can always trust is that God does not lie. He is who he says he is. And we know that because we find that in his word. In Ephesians 1, 4, it says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, even before the foundation of the world was established. And in 2 Timothy 1, 9, it says, He who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, not because of anything we bring to the table, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And there will be many seasons in your life, I've had in the mind, where sometimes that is the only truth that I have to hold on to is that God is who he says he is. And I may not understand why he has me where he has me or why he's allowing what he's allowing, but he does not lie and he is who he says he is. And I can find him in his word. 
Paul also begins by validating his own credibility to the people that are going to be reading this letter. Paul wanted Titus and his congregation to stay grounded with truth because he knew it would keep them on track when deception came their way. Not if deception came their way, when deception came their way. God's truth produces godliness in contrast to ungodliness and confusion that false teaching brings. If you've ever been in a group of people who um, are either believers or are baby believers or new believers or a mix, and you've heard scripture begin to be kind of turned just slightly to fit what this world wants or what that person wants to say, you can see the confusion begin in a group. You can see the word distorted and the truth distorted in a way that's flat dangerous. And that is what he's talking about here is that we hold fast to the truth of what God says it is, black and white, and that is the anchor we use and the tool we use to navigate uh, truth versus uh, false teaching. God's grace had arrived, and because of this extraordinary and indescribable gift, salvation through Jesus Christ, God desires for all of his children to be saved. He tells us this in 1 Timothy 2, 3 and 4. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Jesus Christ is a gift that we've been given, and God desires for all of us to know him, and we have been given the ability to choose to accept him as our Lord and Savior. Our blessed hope, Jesus Christ, the reason for our hope uh, and the truth, the source of the truth that we rely on. In Titus 2.14, it says this, we, who Jesus gave himself up to redeem, redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Paul explains that the grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. There's a lot in that particular verse. A couple of things that highlighted for me is one, in the present age, that God has equipped us with everything we need to live in this world. We continuously hear in the news and in conversation that our world is absolutely, completely, irrevocably broken. And every day you turn on the news, you think it cannot get worse, and it does. There are times where it's like, God, just please, Jesus, come back. Like, we cannot get any more broken than we are. Please come back. But we need to remember, as broken as it seems, outside our loving circles of, of faith family, God equipped us for this present age. This didn't just apply back in the time of Crete. This applies for this present age. He knew what we'd be facing, and he has equipped us to manage this life and keep upright and, and do with godliness, as he called us to do. The other important piece in this is that God is training us all the time. I am not a fan of the word training. I do not like to work out. I wear a workout outfit. It's not because I'm working out. It's just because it's comfortable and it's flexible for whatever I eat. I'm one of those people that is a hypocrisy walking around town in a workout outfit and I have no plans to work out or sweat at all in it. In fact, if I don't sweat, I may wear it the next day so I don't have to wash it. So I'm one of those people, but, but God is the ultimate trainer. The ultimate trainer. Training us means it's a verb. It's actively working in us, on us, around us, and through us. When we're training, we're working towards something greater, working towards mastering a particular skill or, or something we want to learn. You're working with a trainer who is someone who knows more about whatever it is that you're working at, someone who has more wisdom, more experience, and more elevated success in what you're trying to accomplish. A good trainer is an encourager. 
A successful trainer is someone who corrects what you do incorrectly for your own protection. No one wants to go to a typical trainer in a gym and have them allow you to watch you do a, an exercise incorrectly that's going to injure you long term. They're going to step in and correct whatever you're doing so that you do not harm yourself. A trainer pushes you to better yourself, to push past your comfort zone, to deepen your knowledge of a skill or a situation. And the other part is that training is typically painful. A successful trainer stays with you, supports you, celebrates you, and helps you work through obstacles or injuries. God gave a very special trainer to Titus. He gave him Paul. Paul had God as his trainer. So we have the ultimate trainer as God. Each of us gets access to God as our trainer. But we also have trainers that he has trained that come alongside us. Titus had that in Paul. And that's what this letter was. It was almost like a workout, a written workout for him to, to help him as he's training and training other people within the church there at Crete. The other part of this is that we learned several weeks ago and with Chris speaking about the Damascus moment, that we have the Holy Spirit to guide us, but that God blesses us with people on our path, our Damascus moments that intervene and pour wisdom, opinions, pray for us, love on us, guide us, and they're for very specific moments. You may not know you're having a, Damasc a, Damascus, a Damascus moment in that moment, but you can look back and see God intervening in your life in seasons. Sometimes it's going backwards where you see God working that helps you handle the present time that's of what's going on. Well, the trainer for Titus was Paul and God, and, and Paul was continually being trained by our Heavenly Father. So when we're being trained... We, uh, by Jesus or the Holy Spirit, you need to be looking for those people that are training you, but you need to be looking for those moments where God's calling on you to also be a trainer for someone else. That's shepherding and loving and pouring into someone else. Um, as we're going through this life, the other thing that reminded me is that we're also on a navigation. Um, I often make a joke about that. If Jesus would just be my personal Siri and tell me what to do, like if I could talk into my phone and say, tell me what to do now, life would be so much easier, but it's not how it works. But when we're navigating, it can be very difficult. My husband and I have a very different way of navigating when we're in the car. I'm a visual person. And so the way I navigate if we're in the car is I'll put a, you know address into my phone. And then when I pull it up, I want to hit the button where it brings up the directions line by line, where it says where I'm going, because I cannot read a map. North is always what's in front of me. So if I'm facing this way, that's north, or that's north. Wherever I'm going, that's north. I never got that down in school. It's amazing I graduated. My husband likes a map. He likes to see the streets. He likes to see which direction it's going. That totally throws me off. I'm also a person, and if you're moved to Flower Mound, you will recognize this. I was born and raised here, and it still frustrates me. But we live in a town where most streets have three names. So trying to give someone directions is very hard. So I give directions with landmarks because they don't move. You can, I'll say, turn by the Wendy's, then you'll see Target, then you'll see that. That's how I operate. That drives my husband crazy. So we can have the same destination, but we can have totally different navigation on how to get there. It doesn't mean that we're going to the wrong, that we're going in a different way. It just means to a different place. It just means that God is going to give you a specific set of navigation or directions for a point that He's going to give someone else. The idea is, is that we are ultimately going to end up in our ultimate destination, which is with Him. He just tells us when we're going to get there. We don't get to decide. But along the way, as we're navigating this life, you have to pay attention to who's doing your navigating. Is it you or is it God? And when I was researching this, I came across a really funny um, little example of false or dangerous navigation. I'll read it to you. Gertrude and Mildred were sisters, and they were driving to their Sunday school party. The two elderly sisters were thankful they could still drive, and they took turns driving the Buick they shared. 
<clears throat> Sorry. Gertrude became very nervous after Mildred ran through two red lights. Understandably so. I think I would have been more than nervous. As they approached the next light, Mildred was talking nonstop, which I can identify with, and gave no indication that she would stop. Gertrude finally shouted, Mildred, the light is red. You've got to stop. Mildred immediately slammed on the brakes and came to stop at the red light. And as she stared at the red light, she looked over at her sister and said, I'm sorry, I thought you were driving. <laughs> we consistently need to check who we're allowing to drive the decisions in our life. Are we behind the wheel or is Jesus taking the wheel? And yes, that is a country song. I'm not going to sing that one either. Paul reminds us, uh, reminds Titus of the importance of sound teaching and sound living as effective teachers and trusted elders for the church. Paul went as far as to list a variety of qualifications for elders or overseers. And if you studied at 1 Timothy, it's very similar to the same list in 1 Timothy. It's just a condensed list. Paul emphasized how important it is for leaders to be above reproach, that before leading God's household, an elder and overseer should have a practice of faithful leadership within their own family, that he identified uh, areas that an overseer or an elder should encompass, which would be they should not be arrogant, um, they should not be quick-tempered, um, that they should be not addicted to alcohol, they, that they should be expected to exercise their authority responsibly and respectfully, and that they must not be violent or given to fighting or quarreling. Paul also listed off a positive list that he would like to see his leaders encompass. An elder should be hospitable, welcoming people into their home and into their lives and into their church. An elder uh, should also be sober-minded and upright and fair-minded in all that they do. They must exercise control over their passions and be disciplined in the management of their own lives. They need to firmly understand the trustworthy teaching that they had received. And then this understanding of faith would be vital for the church because they would need to encourage others with what they've learned, but they would also need to be prepared to correct an incorrect doctrine. All of these things are very important for church leadership. And if you're first reading Titus, a lot of times you can think, this does not apply to me. I'm not in a leadership role at church, nor do I plan to be. But the reality of it is, is this applicable to our daily lives anyway? We should all strive to, to operate within our families and our lives with this same qualification list. Their lives should look different, just as our lives should look different from a non-believer. What we say should be evidenced by our actions and the way we live our lives. We too are called to live in a manner that separates us in a way that God, that others that are around us know that we love Christ. We can be a fickle people. We're prone sometimes to be influenced by the environment we find ourselves in. We can be too easily swayed one way or another. And Paul knew this was a problem for most people. And so he knew it was vital to the health of the church that those teaching and preaching and sharing and shepherding were very grounded in the faith and in the word. There was a time that my husband and I had a, a very um, loving discussion about fishing, and this came up about being a fickle fish. I had had a very long day. I had three kids at home, and it was one of those days where, like, I was just counting the hours to bedtime for myself, not even for the kids, for myself. And my husband came in, and he had a great day, and he's like, hey, do you care it's going to rain tomorrow? He'd literally been home like 30 seconds. It's going to rain tomorrow. Do you care if I go fish real quick? And I said, are you going to take the kids? He's like, well, no, I, I thought I'd go by myself. And I'm sure my face said something different, but I was like, sure, that's great, go ahead. He's like, I go, Kyle, can you please just go tomorrow? Tomorrow's Saturday, and then we can all sleep in and you can go fish. And he's like, no, Lauren, because we're going to have weather. There's going to be a cool front coming through, and there's going to be rain, and fish, you know, don't like to bite then. I was like, Kyle, that is not true. He's like, no, really, it's true. I, I need to go because they're not going to bite tomorrow. In my mind, I'm thinking, that is so not true. So I said, go ahead, leave. I totally got on Google. 
expecting to, to, when he came home, knock him with the fact that he had totally made that up, only to find that he was totally correct, which was so painful to admit when he came home. That fish truly do not want to come up to the surface if there's a, a major change in temperature or weather, oh, sorry, or weather, and that if that happens, they are prone not to want to bite a hook. They run from the change. They, they are not, they're shy from any kind of weather change. I thought that is so how we are, that we can be devoted to the word and praying and in our Bible. And if something surprises us or goes haywire, a lot of us tend to run the other way. We isolate. It should be the opposite. And there's times where it is where we run to him, but there's times where we're given something that we weren't expecting and don't like and didn't feel like we deserved, and we run the opposite way from God. And that's the opposite of what, what Paul knew the church needed. As followers of Jesus Christ, we profess our faith in God, and we must live out that faith in action with sincerity. 1 Peter 2.12 says this, Live such good lives among pagans that though they accuse you of wrongdoing, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. When you're serving the Lord with a sincere heart and a sincere spirit, God works through you. His works are always good, and his goodness will reflect in your actions. We are not to be idle followers waiting to be served. We know Jesus came to serve, not to be served. And what example for, he gave us to follow. What we say and what we do has an effect on those around us, whether we realize it or not. Um, here's a cute example of a family about what words impact those around us. A man had a habit of grumbling at the food that his wife put before him at dinner. And so as the plates were placed down, he would kind of make a noise, probably like my youngest when I put her food down, that he didn't particularly care for whatever his wife had made. Then he would say a prayer and ask for the blessing. One day after his usual combination slash complaint prayer, his little girl said, Daddy, does God hear us when we pray? Why, of course, he replied. He hears us every time we pray. She paused on this for a moment and thought about it. And she said, does he hear everything we say the rest of the time? Yes, dear, every word, he said, encouraged that he inspired his daughter to be curious about spiritual matters. However, his pride was quickly turned to humility with her next question. Well, if he hears our prayers and then he hears everything else, which one does God believe? I thought, how true is that? God is not fooled by hypocrisy, but neither are the people around us. Our words and our actions matter in our lives. Being ready for every good work is simply being ready to serve when he calls you to, to serve authentically and obediently to whatever the Lord calls you to do. Titus rose to the challenge that was given to him. He did not pull back. Regardless of how hard it was, he relied on the Holy Spirit's teaching and God working through him and serving with him, calling him to do what God had called him to do. Be ready to speak and share and demonstrate your faith in any situation or occasion. We are mindful that good works are evident by the use of our tongues in Titus also. Titus 3, verses 1 and 2 says this. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work and to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy to all people. It's easier said than done. Love others. There are some people who can really try your patience and sometimes merely tolerating people in your life is as much love as you can show them. But we're to look past how we are treated and treat others the way we would like to be treated. It's total grace, the grace that's been poured out for us. We are capable of choosing to embrace an attitude that develops and demonstrates peaceable, humble citizenship of people who bring honor to the witness for God <clears throat> and represent him well. 
This is a funny one. An elderly woman walked in church, and the friendly usher greeted her at the door and helped her up the flight of stairs and said, where would you like to sit, ma'am? The front row, she answered. The man said, you really don't want to do that. The minister is not very good. He's kind of boring, and this way you can take a nap if you sit towards the back. Do you happen to know who I am? The woman asked. No, he said. I'm the pastor's mother, she replied. He said, do you know who I am? And she said, no, I don't. And he said, good. (laughs) Speak ill of no one. Pour only the good deposit, the goodness of God into others. Jesus Christ, the reason for our hope and the source of truth, the good deposit that we need to rely on at all times. Titus 3.9 says this, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. We like to be right. I definitely am one that I like to be right. And we can waste tons of energy and emotion and time trying to be right. Paul strongly advises Titus to avoid such controversies, that unless it was salvation-based, people are going to have different opinions and different thoughts. And unprofitable disputes, meaning that they're not salvation-based or life-giving, only waste time. And Paul was a man of action. Studied in the fall and studied with this, this semester, you know Paul is a man about action. He's not waste time. He believed that our time on earth was precious and that every minute should be life filled with life-giving energy and nothing less. He wanted all energy and focus to be based on serving God in fruitful and faithful God-centered action that would only strengthen the kingdom. Will Bowen has this comment about complaining, that complaining is like bad breath. You notice it when it comes out of somebody else's mouth, but not your own. Grace and good works go together. Don't waste precious time in controversies. They don't yield good good fruit, and they don't further God's kingdom, and they do not bring him glory. Don't waste your time arguing with a Pharisee. That was a very wise statement given to me by a shepherd many years ago. Don't waste your time arguing with a Pharisee. Use your time to pour into a vessel that's ready to receive truth and love of God. Who's ready to be received the good deposit you've been given. Here's the awesome news. We are commanded to guard the good deposit that's entrusted to us and to share the gospel and live lives that are a direct reflection of whom we follow, Jesus Christ, our heavenly father, God himself, who will allow you to display that love when you give him the opportunities. But the kicker is it won't be easy, but he will equip you for what you have been called to do. One of the hardest qualities that many Christians struggle with is not only giving forgiveness, it's accepting forgiveness for ourselves. And so that is an area we're going to move into now with our next study. So next week, you're going to start into a new book, a very short book. And if you haven't studied it, you could literally read it probably in about 15 minutes. Chris and I were talking last week because we had very different ideas about how to pronounce, I call him Phil, Phil's name. There are a variety of ways you can do it, and we had fun kind of going back through. There's Philemon, 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 um, I'm losing some of them, Philemon, and I just go with Phil. I'm one that when I studied Kings, I had to make my own nicknames for everybody. I could not even keep up. So Philemon is how I'm going to pronounce it, but you can pronounce it any way you want. Um, when you study this book, you're going to be probably surprised by some of the things you find in it. I'm not going to give it all away, but I will tell you some background on it. The letter, um, this particular letter is one of Paul's prison epistles. Um, it goes along with Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians, and they were written when Paul was under uh, house arrest in Rome. This letter was written about 60 AD, 
And so who he is is a friend of Paul's. And there is belief from, from theologians, some theologians that Philemon came under um, a knowledge of Christ because of Paul. There's no proof of that, but there's a lot of belief that that is who kind of guided him into the faith. So that would make sense why they have a very personal relationship with each other. There's a trust there. Uh, while Paul was in Rome, Philemon was in Colossae, where he started a church. And his church was literally in he and his wife's home. That is where the church met, which is awesome. Uh, and says a lot about who he is, that he had this in his home. This letter is written from Paul to Philemon uh, with a goal in mind. I'm going to say it different every time I say it, just to kind of encompass everybody's view. Um, it was written from Paul with a goal in mind. Now, I'm not going to give the goal away, but if you read the letter, you're going to probably grasp what his goal was. This letter is the shortest letter written by Paul, but let me tell you what it, what it lacks. In length, it makes up for in depth. Something you'll notice when you read this is that this is the only letter where Paul does not talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is not a mistake or an oversight. There is a very purposeful, purposeful reason he does that, that you'll discover. This letter was written from Paul to him, but it's also written to all followers of Jesus Christ. And you will see as you read through it, you will... It's very convicting, and you will see a wave of a certain subject going through this letter. The letter's contents are not easy requests. They are hard, but more importantly, these requests depict a beautiful picture of what only, only Christian friendship is, but also what loving others with the grace that each of us has been given is like. So I can't wait to see what you all think about it next week. And with that said, I'm going to close this in prayer, and you are welcome to go. Heavenly Father, I thank you um, for each of the families represented in this room. I thank you for the families and the ladies who could not be here this morning. I thank you for Chris, Lord, and her obedience to share what you share with her every week. I ask, God, that you will wrap your arms around this sweet class, that you will prepare their hearts to receive what you have for each of them in the end of this study. And I just ask, God, that you will help us all to finish strong. Help us to be obedient, Lord, to the Holy Spirit's calling. Um, help us to have eyes to see those who need to hear more about you and who need a little extra love um, and prayer this week. We love you and thank you and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a good day.